Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. Today I have on my friend Adi Suta, the recent father. Congratulations, brother. And he was actually my first client that I had when I started a behavior change coaching program that I did before I got the job here at Onnit. And what started out as me helping him um, undo his nail biting habit turned into a brotherhood friendship that still lasts today. And he's one of the primary influencers that got me into meditation, which is one of my core foundational habits now. And so, of course, whenever we talk, we tend to talk about meditation and the effects that it has on us. And um, we also get into relationships. Uh, he heard me talk about on an Instagram Live recently, kind of this idea that I've been playing with where just like there's extrovert and introvert, there's um, this, this model that I'm playing around with is for uh, whether or not to do monogamy or some form of non-conventional dating standards, I think there's this interesting thing to how to frame it between are you someone who finds your, that finds the divine in creating, like being in the flow state, creating something, or do you find it um, when you're interpersonally interacting with other people? And just like, extrovert and introvert. We both have both tendencies inside of us, but we tend to lean towards one. And I kind of call people who find the divine in creating builders and people who who find the divine in relationships, experiencers. And kind of the idea that I've been playing with is if you're an experiencer, um, non-conventional relationships seems like an interesting, challenging path to find or to have more of those divine moments. Whereas if, if you're a builder and you find that you intertwine with the divine through being alone and get into a flow state, creating some type of art, it seems like monogamy can be a really conducive container to reaching those states. And so it's something that we explore in the podcast. And I think it's um, an interesting thing that I'm trying to understand more. And I think you guys might enjoy it as well. We also talk about psychedelics and why you should go on meditation retreats, which I have not done one yet. And he's invited me to three or four or five. And I've said no each time. So I know I got to get on that grind. I'm going to do it eventually. Adi, thank you for coming on and always just being so goddamn genuine. Um, I foresee us doing many more of these over the years. And um, if you find the podcast has been a positive force in your life, um, a way that you can repay that would be to go leave a rating and a review. Your honesty is what I ask for. And um, people that I try to get on the podcast who are authors or professors or philosophers, one of the primary things that they go and they look at to see whether or not it's um, worth their time or if it's their agent or their handler, the one thing that they will go check is the amount of rating and reviews because they think it's a proxy to the audience and you know they care about the audience. Numbers matter in this type of stuff. So if you guys want to support the podcast, that's a beautiful way to go do it. Also, if you find that this episode is something that would help or um, playfully challenge someone that you know, sharing the podcast is also a powerful way to support this thing. As always, I love you guys. Thank you for giving your attention and your time to this episode. 
means a lot to me, truly. I hope you guys are having a great fucking day and that you enjoy this conversation. Namaste. Adi, thank you for coming back on the podcast. You may be my most visited guest on the previous podcast that I did, the metaprogramming podcast. Um, for people who might not know, you both open up people's mouths and clean their teeth, and you open up people's brains and you clean their minds. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Eric. I'm happy to be here, man. Well said. So um, if people are interested in the myth that makes you, they can go check out the metaprogramming podcast and look up the first podcast that I did with you. But because I've already asked you those questions, I'm just going to fucking have a conversation with you. Is that cool? Yeah, man. I love it. So you were saying before we got started that one of the things that you wanted to chop up with me about was meditation. So how would you describe what meditation is and kind of give us an idea of how it first really came into your life? Um, I would say that meditation is a way of, in its simplest form of training the mind to become more calm and clear. And the way that it came into my life was about 10 years ago when I was, um, going to dental school, when I was doing my dental school training, um, I had just started my relationship with the woman who's now my wife and congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and I had always had an interest in philosophy, Eastern philosophy specifically, and came across a meditation group that was practicing, um, in the area where I lived and always having had an interest in personal development. I decided that it was something that I wanted to try out because there's a, point that you get to when studying Eastern philosophy, where the, if you're not meditating, you're fucking not paying attention. Exactly. Right. There's like the intellectual understanding only gets you so far and then you actually have to do right. the practice. So I found a group down here, a Zen group. Zen Roughly group. what age is this? Where you, where you first found this local group? I guess I was like 22 or 23 years old and I'm 33 now. And had you started trying to do an independent practice or was this group thing your first experience with attempting the practice? I had done some guided meditations on my phone. I downloaded some apps and had a little bit of a taste of what it was like, but I didn't really know what I was doing. I kind of was spiritual window shopping, um, <laughs> hopping around from technique to technique. I didn't, I didn't really get any momentum or any traction with anything until I started practicing with a group. Um, yeah. So that's kind of how I got into it. I, I got in, I got into meditation originally because I wanted to, um, figure out why things were patterning in my life the way that they were. I, I don't, I've always been a very, uh, introspective person and, um, interested in the human mind more than anything, the human psyche. And, yeah. um, figured this was like, uh, the best way to really get my hands dirty and to, you know, see what, what the mind was all about and, um, wanted to improve my relationship dynamics. I wanted to lower stress levels, all the reasons that people get into meditation. Um, I had, and yeah, so I have a couple of questions. Um, sure. the first one is, can you remember any specific pattern that 
was the pattern that kind of brought you to this aha moment that it's time to see if these people in the East, um, what they're talking about, if it can actually help me? There was a very specific pattern. Um, and it had to do with my pattern in intimate relationships. Mm. Um, the way it worked out for me was that, like I said, I just started this relationship with this beautiful woman. And, um, I realized very early in the relationship that I, if I didn't figure out why I, uh, responded to intimate relationships in the same exact way every fucking time I got into one that I was just going to keep sort of sabotaging every relationship that I get into. So the pattern with me was always, you know, I get super excited about getting into a relationship. I get into it and honeymoon phase would end and I get bored and I would either end the relationship myself or find a way to have the other person end it for me. Um, and I noticed early on that, you know, I was like, man, this is like the seventh time this is happening. Like, I really don't want this to happen again. Um, and so, you know, I, I attacked it from the psychoanalytic front as well, sort of trying to dig into my history and into my, uh, family of origin dynamics to see where that was coming from. But really it wasn't until I got, uh, allowed my meditation practice to deepen that a lot of the insights that I got from breaking things down psychoanalytically actually took hold in my life. And, um, it's been, it's really been a blessing. It's really been, uh, something that has saved, definitely saved my relationship. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty remarkable actually. For sure. And I don't want to get ahead of the story. So that is the fruit of the bounty, but the beginning of the bounty was you finding this local group, right? Yes. So what happened? So I went into, so the first time that I went, you know, I, I, I went on Google and I started to look up local meditation groups and I'd been to a few spiritual gatherings in the area. And, um, those, those, those gatherings can be very hit or miss. And there were a lot of misses. Yeah. Can I ask really quick what, cause I don't, I don't even know what to conceptualize um, when I hear spiritual gathering. So could you kind of paint us a picture and then give us what are the qualities of a hit and what are the qualities of a miss? Well, I'd been to a few uh, sort of parties where, or where people would gather and like do some yoga and do some meditation and then, uh, socialize afterwards and it was a great place to you know these these kinds of yeah, gatherings cool. were great for meeting people um yeah. i didn't really feel like i was doing work um it didn't feel like i was i see what you're saying yeah, yeah, you know yeah. i mean it didn't it didn't feel like i was getting down to like the root causes of the things that were creating suffering in my life and it didn't feel like i was training anything it felt sort of like i was relaxing and meeting people heard um a hit uh, is what I got when I went to my, when I met my meditation teacher. Um, the first time that I went, they were practicing in this, um, they were renting out this space at, at a dojo at like a local Aikido dojo. Like after yeah. people would, uh, finish their martial arts training there, the Zen group would come and just rent the place out for like an hour at like nine o'clock at night. And I went the first night and I was like two minutes late. 
So they had already started, sat down, and they were giving beginners instruction to some of the people there. And I sort of peeked my head. Yeah. You know, it's, I, it know. seems like the it seems like the wrong type of thing to be late to. I know. <laughs> and um, I actually went home that night. I was like, I'm not going in there late. And I went <laughs> home. And then a couple weeks later, I was like, all right, I'm going to give it another go. And um, so I went back and I sat down. I went inside and I met the people that were there, probably like six or seven people there. And the person that is my main meditation teachers, I have a couple of meditation teachers, but the person that really got me into it, that got me hooked, um, gave me beginner's instruction. And he said, if you came here because you want something, you came to the wrong place. And that, I just thought it was so interesting. I thought that that was, I don't know, it just hit my mind like a bomb or something. I was like, of course I fucking came here because I want something. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, now I know what he meant by that, but it sort of captivated me. And it, it, you know, I did the practice. We sat there for a half hour, which was like 25 minutes longer than I'd ever sat still. And um, yeah. nothing happened. And, uh, you know, nothing happened. I was just sitting, mm. staring at the floor and breathing. And, um, I came home and things were pretty much exactly the same as they always were. And then I came back a couple more times and uh, came to some of the longer weekend sittings and gradually started to sit longer and longer and then eventually got into sitting retreats. And that's when things got more interesting. So what is a retreat? What is a meditation sitting retreat even look like? So a retreat is an opportunity to sort of, um, if you're, if you are a practitioner, if you've been practicing meditation for a while, it's a way to intensify your practice. Um, it's a way to put, really put it all down for a few days and just focus on investigation of your mind and of your patterns and of life. Really. Um, if you are not, uh, regular meditator a retreat is a really good way to get a taste of what's possible with meditation mm -hmm. um i think a lot of times you know despite the fact that i've been doing this for like 10 years not, not very many of my close friends meditate and yeah. i think the reason is because they think that they can't they're like oh i've tried it you know like i can't concentrate i'm too add it doesn't work and um you know, I, I, I try to get across that it's a skill that you develop and it's not, sure. it's not something that you can try and tell whether you're good or not um, just from attempting once or twice or even 10 times. Um, but if you sit a retreat, you will get a taste of what the practice does and how it works and how it affects your life and your relationships just because of the intensity and the length and duration of the time you're sitting. Yeah. It's like if you eat shit all day and you just eat candy and processed foods and um, fast food, and then you go an hour and you fast and then you tell someone who, you know, might be like a nutritionist, like I fasted and I don't feel anything. The nutritionist is just going to be like, Oh honey, you have no idea. 
right. the amount of time you're about to have to give this, exactly. you know? And I think like I've been meditating for about two years now, pretty consistently. And if I miss a day, I find that if I only sit for 10 minutes, I am witnessing my mind revolt against my will to concentrate on my breath, literally probably every two seconds. And it's fascinating and it's fun because I'm at least at the point now where I can kind of have a humorous compassion for the fact that I have not been able to keep my awareness on my breath for three consecutive breaths for the entire 10 minutes. But it's because a part of me knows, like, I've been eating junk food. I've been checking my phone. I've been reacting to the things happening on my computer. I didn't sit the night before. And I won't commit to sitting to 20 minutes because I think I have too much that I have to do. And this is the nature and the quality of what my mind will be given where I'm at right now. Yeah, that's really well put. I love the shitty food analogy. That's a really good way of putting it. There's so much input and stimulation that we're receiving, which is being bombarded with every single day. Um, you know, the forces of unconsciousness are are vast and uh, they're everywhere. And, you know, t- just taking five or 10 or 20 minutes a day to just put it all down and just stop and just bear witness to whatever's going on, I think is a really great gift. I think it's super important. The way you described it is, is spot on. Yeah. Will you try to paint a picture for us what it's like um, subjectively for your relationship to your mind when you do one of these week-long retreats where I'm assuming it's essentially like an, like an hour on 10 minutes off for four hours and then you eat and you don't talk while you eat. And then like four hours again, where it's one hour on 15 minutes off. And then you do that for two or three days. Is it something roughly like that? I can walk you through a whole day if you want. Yeah. Um, Drop it like it's hot. All right, let's go. So this is, uh, I practice in a, uh, Korean Zen Buddhist tradition that was, uh, founded here in the States, I believe in the early sixties by a Korean Zen master named Sung San. He uh, came here from Korea and started a couple of schools and um, created an American Sangha, basically, an American Buddhist community here. And uh, they have a group of Zen centers all over the country and hold these retreats a couple times a year. And the, the format of these particular retreats are the only ones that I can speak for. I know some people sit Vipassana, which is a little bit different. That's the other very common long retreat that people in the States sit. But at these Zen retreats, the way it works is there is a wake-up bell that rings at 4.30 in in the morning. And um, that means it's time to get up and brush your teeth and drink some tea, whatever you want to do, put your clothes on, and go into the meditation hall. So you get ready, and there are cushions uh, lining the outer edge of what's called the Dharma room, the meditation hall. And there's probably, typically there's 20 to 25 people that sit these retreats. And you sit down at, on your cushion. You have a cushion that's designated for the, for the entirety of the retreat. And you sit down and every, and once everybody's seated, the retreat begins. Um, there's a little ritual at the beginning where there's some incense that's lit and some candles on the altar 
and that signals the start of the retreat. The first practice that we do every morning is a bowing practice. So everybody stands up behind their cushion and does 108 prostrations. And I don't know if you've ever seen Buddhist monks doing these bows, um, but basically it's just like a, it's kind of, it kind of looks like you're doing like a down dog in yoga over and over and over again. Like you do down Mm -hmm. dog and then you stand back up and then you go back down and then you stand back up and you go back down and everyone's sort of doing that in unison. It's uh, while counting in your mind to 108. So you're keeping, you're using your, the, the movement of your body and your breath as your object of meditation to do the 108 vows. And um, it has a, the effect of getting you very energized. You know, it's 4.30 in the morning. I think if I went straight into sitting at 4.30 in the morning, it'd be really hard for me to sit. Um, I'd probably fall asleep on my cushion. So the effect the bowing has is that it really energizes you. I mean, you really get worked up. It takes about 20 minutes. You're sweating buckets by the end of this. Um, and you're also very focused because you're trying to keep count and you're also paying attention to the movements of your body and also paying attention to keeping in sync with everyone in the room. So it's kind of like a, like, Hey, wake up right at the beginning of the day. Yeah. And, um, so that's bowing practice. That's basically what yoga is. I mean, yoga is a, psychophysical exercise system, right? That is supposed to connect you to your body. Um, Zen master Sung San used to say that when you're asleep, your consciousness is gone somewhere, right? It's like floating around in New York city or, you know, swimming around under the ocean, or maybe it's in like outer space or, you know, your consciousness is going on all these adventures. And what the bowing does is it reconnects it, grounds it back in your body. So that's kind of like a poetic way of explaining the phenomenon of becoming grounded right after you wake up from sleep. So um, that's the first part. And then um, there's chanting practice after that. And chanting is basically a meditation that uses uh, the voice and the sound of other people's voices as the object of meditation. So for people that don't know what I mean when I say object of meditation, it's just the thing that you focus on when your mind wanders. So whenever your mind wanders off in chanting, you bring it back to the sound of your voice. You bring it back to the sound of everybody else's voices. And um, you're reading the chants from these booklets. Most of the chants you don't even understand. They're in Korean. Um, it, they're, sometimes they're not, they don't even have any meaning. They're just syllables. You're just chanting syllables. And basically the, <clears throat> you're using your voice to... Uh, stay present to practice staying present. All these practices are just bringing you back into the driving you into the present moment. Um, so there's about an hour and a half of that broken up into like 10 to 15 minute chants. And, um, then the first sitting period starts and the way the sitting periods work is that it's 30 to 40 minute sits. And so you sit for 30 minutes, then there's, uh, these clappers are hit three times and then you stand up and then you do walking meditation for 10 minutes. Then you sit again for 30 minutes. Then the clappers are hit again. And then you walk again for 10 minutes and then you sit for 30 minutes. So basically all the sitting periods are interrupted by periods of walking meditation. Um, and after those three periods, you do breakfast 
and the breakfast is done. This is all done in silence. You eat silently. The uh, meals are eaten in silence. There's a very particular way that you eat the meals and arrange the bowls in front of you. And everything is very meticulous and particular. And the whole idea behind that is something that I didn't like in the beginning because I was like, why does everything have to be like, it, it, it annoyed me that there was uh, structure and fluidity, <laughs> right? But now I think it's actually really beautiful. Like there's like this beautiful elegance to the way that everything's arranged. And um, when everything is prearranged for you, you can really just take your mind and your preferences out of it. Just do it. Yeah. Um, so you eat these meals. Um, you know, we bring the food in to this table that's in the middle of the room and we, uh, we all serve each other. Everybody goes around and sort of serves everybody else food and then we sit down and just eat the meals in silence. And then we wash our bowls and put them away. Um, then after that, there's a work period that's around nine 30. So now we're at like nine 30 in the morning and there's about an hour work period where we clean the Dharma room. Everybody gets a job. Somebody, you know, somebody will sweep outside on the front deck. Somebody will clean up in the kitchen, you know, from breakfast leftovers and, uh, and it's work period meditation. So it's not a break. It's actually a meditation period and work period really taught me to enjoy work, um, to enjoy washing the dishes, to not always be in this mentality of getting to the end of the job that I'm doing, but instead actually just enjoying the work while I'm doing it, like feeling the soap on the dish, feeling the water, you know, trickle through my hands trying to do a meticulous job at whatever it is that I'm doing rather than just trying to get to the end. Um, so that's work period. Then that ends. And then there's another set of seated meditations um, with the walking meditations in between. Then you do lunch. Then you do another period of like three or four sittings and walking meditations. Then you do dinner. Then there's another round of chanting and then there's two short sittings and then you go to bed. So basically there's like 12 to 13 half hour sits throughout the day. The retreat ends at nine 40. So you're basically practicing from like four 30 in the morning until nine 40 at night. And there are breaks where you can take naps and chill and stuff like that. So it's not, it's not continuous. So what this sounds like is almost like a boot camp or an initiation ritual into what your mind could actually be like if it were not fed poison for at least a full day. You know, like a lot of people listening actually don't know what their consciousness would be like if they didn't eat food for 24 hours. And I fasted a couple of, I have fasted a couple of times and What's more remarkable than the feeling of hunger, which caps out at about like 16 hours after not eating, like you don't get more hungry, like you don't get more physically hungry, but what the mind will do when you have, when, when you make the rule that you're not going to try to get food for 24 hours. And I can hear in my mind, a lot of people being like, why would anyone do that? like when you're describing your experience. <laughs> yeah. And I think the really powerful thing to connect to is anyone listening who has ever changed their diet or their workout routine from basically no consciousness to some consciousness, I always hear it talked about. 
you don't realize how sick you felt until you start to get better. And once you start to get better, you're like, how the fuck did I eat candy in the morning? Like, dude, I remember in high school, I used to start my day eating three chocolate chip cookies and drinking a full thing of um, like skim milk or something where it's just basically fat or just um, it was just lactose. It was just sugar. Me too, and, bro. And I would crash in second period and I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to pay attention for like two classes. And then... Once I kind of got an understanding of like what glucose was doing to me roughly like halfway through college and I started drinking green smoothies and fat coffee in the morning and I fucking, I realized how good I could feel like it completely opened my eyes to my ignorance that I had for the first, you know, 22, 23 years. And it's the same thing with meditation. The it it is it seems to be a fact. You can go. There are hundreds of studies now that have found that a consistent meditation practice improves focus. And when you think about what what focus is, focus is your essentially your subjective feeling of having free will. And to be able to command your will towards the things that you want to do in your life. And once, like, if you, your entire life, your entire experiential life is being mediated through your ability or your inability to place your will and to keep it somewhere. And the your ability to manifest the life that you want C- fundamentally like as long as you have a basic computational iq like as as anyone listening to this your iq is not the problem what y- the problem is that's keeping you from generating the ideal life you have is consistently placed will mm-hmm. which is essentially focus and it is a thing that can be cultivated yep. and you know it's like someone who only eats terrible food for 10 years saying, I, I can't be skinny. Like I it's, I'm biologically programmed to be fat is like someone who is constantly checking their phone for 10 years saying I have ADHD or ADD and I can't meditate. I know I can't do this. It's just what they've practiced. It's, it's the, it's the pattern that they've ingrained. I, you know, I th- I'm under the impression that people, you know, hunter gatherers back in the day were probably just naturally meditative. I think just going about their normal daily life was probably a lot like the feeling, you know, three days into a meditation retreat where you're just doing what you're doing a hundred percent and you're not thinking about anything else. You're just walk when you're walking, you're just walking when you're, you know, stalking the deer or whatever you're just stalking the deer when you're climbing a tree to get the mango you're just climbing the tree when you're talking to your tribes mate or whoever you're just with them 100 percent. i think that and the environment we live in is just not conducive to that so unfortunately or fortunately whatever we just we have to practice you know just in the same way that we ha- we have to unfortunately like exercise and go to the gym and we have to train because we don't live outside anymore and we're not hunter-gatherers so we have to do these things to like put our bodies into that optimal state 
for sure. And the thing that gets me excited is not that we have to do it, but that we have figured out that there are these things that we can do that seems to put our biology in alignment with our psychology in a way where we can be so much more potent in life Mm -hmm. if we want to by doing a couple of these core habits, you know? And like one of them obviously is having your diet be consistent with something that your meat suit was meant to ingest. Same thing with exercise. And also when you meditate and like, what I'm really interested in and what I think people listening will be very interested in is can you kind of weave the story of how your growing meditation practice helped you realize one of the myths that were making you, which is whatever your beliefs were around relationships that kept giving you the same outcome. Yeah. And the thing that I want to point out is, man, um, it's interesting that in your early 20s, you had already experienced this pattern seven times and that in your early 20s, you were willing to start to do the work. So both you were dating a lot of women. Good for you, brother. And second, <laughs> to have that type of awareness that early is really interesting. And I think for people listening, it will help connect the, well, why should I meditate um, for them when you start to explore how it helped you um, uncover this myth around dating yeah well the basic mechanism of addiction is that we experience a trauma in childhood and that trauma creates a void that we try to fill with things and experiences and um nothing ever satisfies and if or maybe it does temporarily but then you know it just gets swallowed up in the void and then we need something else so i was using relationships as drugs essentially to make myself feel better to get validation to you know feel better you know to somehow validate my life and um obviously you know they the 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 drug like effects would wear off and then I would have to get, you know, go find another hit somewhere. And, um, what happens, um, if the void, you know, or like whatever the black hole, the trauma induced icky, whatever thing that we carry around inside of us, if that's not addressed, it gets bigger. And then it requires, you require more and more um, intense stimulation to quench it, you know, and it's very obvious and easy to see in drug addicts that require, you know, higher and higher doses of whatever their drug of choice is um, to, you know, quench that thirst. But it's less obvious when it's something more vague like relationships. So what I noticed with, with, in my situation the way that the mechanism of meditation played out is that it would force me over and over and over again to sit with that thing, you know, whatever you want to call it. It's like a hot ball in my stomach or something. Um, it's, it's, it's that muck, that stuff, you know, that's left over there from whatever, you know, 
traumatic experiences we, we experience as children. And we all experience trauma to some degree. It doesn't have to be anything super intense. It can be, it varies from person to person, but everybody has some degree of that. Yeah. And the thing that I would like to interject here is that um, Stanislav Grof's research would suggest that all of us actually have gone through a super severe trauma and it is the experience of being birthed. And for people who aren't aware of his research, I would recommend uh, Realms of the Human Unconscious, which is a really great book. But one of the things he points out is he worked with um, hundreds and hundreds of clients before LSD was made illegal and he would use it as a therapist and he found that almost every client, no matter what their disorder was, um, at a high enough dose of LSD would re-experience their own birth and would have insights from the experience that they would go then match and validate with the doctors or with the parents and they were details that the babies could not have known or were not ever told. And so they were genuinely re-experiencing and it's evidence that some part of us is recording the experience when we are being born. And when you connect to the severity of the experience of being in the womb and then having the water break and then having what feels like the universe itself start to clamp down on you and then you're forced through a tunnel that you can barely breathe and it's dark and you're being smashed by the thing that feels like the universe, it's traumatic. <laughs> And when you look at how we handle that infant when it comes out, you know, like it's coming into fluorescent lights and there's all these foreign bodies with gloves and shit. Like there, there's almost no like flesh to flesh contact and the baby might be smacked to make sure that it's um, breathing and crying properly. Like there's lots of stuff going on with all of us period. And then on top of that, we might have experiential or familial experiences that layer trauma on top of that. Yes, that's intense. It's pretty remarkable uh, research there. I'll have to check that out. But yeah, it makes sense, man. I just saw my son was born three months ago and it was definitely an intense experience. I was like, my God, I yeah. cannot believe that women have been doing this in nature for millennia, like outside in the fucking forest. It's incredible. Yeah, It's really incredible. But, um, so, you know, quenching that, that void without addressing it just again, causes you to chase more and more and it gets bigger and bigger and it, it can, it can really, uh, fuck up your entire life. So what I noticed happening in meditation, especially at meditation retreats is that you're forced to sit there with feelings of discomfort, feelings of boredom. Feeling, you know, and boredom, I think, is a cousin of anxiety. I think it's like, I think they're very related, very closely related. Um, Interesting. Yeah. And so you sit there with it and you can't go anywhere. You can't go to the fridge and grab a beer. You can't turn the TV on. You can't call your mom. You can't talk to anybody. You can't even really move. You just have to like really feel the sensations in your body of this thing. And this thing feels really familiar and you really want to get fucking get away from it, but you can't. And you sit there with it for, for hours and hours and hours and it comes and goes and you're not always necessarily feeling it. But in those times when you are feeling it on retreat where you feel like you really don't want to be there and you feel like what's the fucking point and you feel antsy and anxious and like you want to get up. That's where the fucking magic is right there. 
Amen. Ali has this uh, quote and he's like, I don't start counting my reps until I feel I want to give up. <laughs> and then that's when I start because that's when the work starts. So uh, Brad Warner is one of my favorite meditation teachers. He says the same thing about uh, uh, when you're starting a meditation practice at home, he says to sit for whatever amount feels comfortable to you plus two or three minutes. I love that. Yeah. So just to give yourself that little bit of, uh, I kind of want to get up that little bit of discomfort. So, you know, I would, I initially went to these retreats to kind of try to sort through this stuff that was bothering me, you know, these big issues that I was having, uh, to sort through it psychoanalytically to kind of get to the bottom of it and figure out like, Oh, why, you know, why do I do this? Or why does this bother me? Or what is this about? But what I came to realize is that that's not how the healing happened. It happened through this process of just sitting there in the low-grade chronic discomfort and anxiety that we all feel and just kind of watching it, it just kind of becomes that response to want to quench that with stimulation just kind of becomes attenuated and calms down. So I would leave these retreats um, just feeling like I had what my meditation teacher calls enough mind. So it's like, okay, this is enough. You know, I don't actually need anything more than this. Um, and so slowly, slowly, slowly over time, you know, my relationship with my wife improved, my relationship with my family members improved and became more clear. We all still have our issues, obviously, and there's still work to be done forever. Um, but everything just becomes, became a, a lot more clear and this need to, uh, look for stimulation outside of myself to feel comfortable in my own skin just gradually lessened and lessened and lessened. Yeah. And the thing that um, is jumping out to me, man, is when we talk about like the classic psychoanalytic approach is to get to the root. And the beautiful thing about that phrase is that to get to the root fails if you aren't looking at what the fruit is of the plant, which is what is happening right now. So I think a lot of people will run to childhood to look at why things are as they are before they really fucking sit down and look at what is, what are the patterns in my life right now that are creating all the things that I, that I don't like, or that I'm resisting that are causing me pain. And once you really invite those parts of you into your home, like, for example, um, you know, the one that you shared with us is getting into a relationship really quickly. Well, what's happening when you're single? Like, what are you actually feeling when you are single that is causing you to then go seek in the first place? And then what are the patterns and the behaviors that you go through when you're on the hunt or when you're looking and when you are, you know, trying out your options. And then when you choose one and you have a partner and you start to actually like what I'm trying to get at is really looking in high resolution, what the unfolding patterns are now, because I think that is what meditation does. And I think it's a byproduct. It's not the focus. It's not what, it's not why you meditate, but it's a thing that happens when you meditate is you start to slow down enough where you really start to see 
Like, what is happening in your mind before one of your patterns starts? Yep. Like, I do this thing now, man, probably four or five times a day where my, my hand reaches for my phone before my brain gets to register that I'm choosing to check Instagram. Yes, yeah. And then, and then my conscious, but I'm, I'm at the point now where I'm like, oh, my meat suit went and did that. And then the phone is still facing down, my hand's on it. And then I'm like, do I choose to look at it? And I almost always say yes, because the impulse is still there but I'm I'm slowly starting to actually have the awareness gap between the hand bringing the phone to my face. Yep. And maybe once every two days. No, I'm I'm being too hard on myself. Probably two times in the morning, I will stop myself. And I didn't have that thing for the first year I meditated. Mm-hmm. But it, I don't know when it started. But within the last year. It's now this thing that I have. If if I meditate at least 10 minutes a day, almost every time I go to, un- not every time, probably at least half of the times I unconsciously touch my phone, I, I'm able to stop and ask myself, do I want to look at my phone? And I almost always say yes. And then I fucking do it. And I think that that's the power of any psychoanalytic, any psychological framework that's trying to help you change a pattern, the most important piece is the present, which is what is the pattern? What is the behavior? What are the thoughts or the images or the sensations in the body that arise that lead to me doing this behavior? And then I think a natural progression, once you really look at what's happening now, is to go see, well, okay, why do I have that pattern? Mm -hmm. It's probably from something in the past. Take it back, take it back, take it back, take it back. Um, so that was just the thing that came up to me when I heard you use the metaphor getting to the root. Yeah, no, that's it's beautiful. Yeah, you're becoming more intimate with reality. You're becoming more intimately connected to the present moment. Um, you, you know, if you take an emotion like anger, it has, uh, and you kind of, think of it as a wave. So it's got, you know, it's got an incline and then it's got a crest and then it's got a decline and then it's gone. Right. So I think before I started to meditate, I would sort of, as it were, wake up either on the crest of the anger wave, or maybe even on the decline, like after I'd already gotten angry about something and it was starting to dissipate, I would sort of become conscious inside of that part of reality what's what what meditation has done is is it's slowly given me the skill to wake up on the incline or maybe like even right at the very beginning when like the thing is just starting to like percolate up at the very very beginning when you still have that choice you know when you were talking about reaching for your phone um it, it reminded me of that that's exactly how the mechanism works i think it's just because you're there and you're present each step of the way and you're involved in your life as it's unfolding, you catch things that maybe, you know, two years ago you just never would have. You would have just been unconscious. Yeah. And I want to take a pivot or I guess this kind of moves into this, but uh, we had a really interesting conversation about relationships a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And I think that this actually ties into, um, you know, 
how meditation has helped you with your current relationship. I guess with that segue, what is the first thing that comes to your mind that you would want to talk about or questions that you have or comments? And then we'll just go from there. Um, I'm not really sure. Steer me a little bit more here with where you want the conversation to go. What exactly um, do you mean like with regards to how meditation practices helped my relationship or? Yeah. So I guess um, I don't want to ask too pointed of questions in case it's not uh, like it's not stuff that you want to talk about on the podcast, mm -hmm. but um, what what have been the major realizations for you in your relationship now that meditation is allowing you to be in the present moment? Um, at least since you and I started being friends about two or three years ago, like what have been the major shifts for you personally in your relationship? I think the biggest changes that have happened for me personally with my wife and I is that I've been able to and this is a little bit more on like the psychoanalytic side, which is like kind of the stuff that me and you worked on with journaling and with um, diving into my stories. Um, the thing that has improved my relationship more than anything has been dealing with family of origin dynamics. And I really got into this stuff after reading Neil Strauss's book, The Truth. It's a really great book for anybody out there that is um, – I loved it. Yeah. It's incredible. It's just like a really, it's a really fun book too. It's like a, it's a very entertaining read. Um, it's a fascinating book, but it got me, uh, thinking about how my relationships to my parents were affecting my current relationship. And, um, which, you know, if you go into psychoanalysis or you go into therapy, everything comes down to your relationship to your mom and dad. <laughs> and, um, the, thing that was super helpful for me and i don't know if this is what if this is where you meant to go with a conversation eric so you can go wherever you want to go but um you know i read this book and i realized you know maybe a lot of the issues that we're dealing with in our relationship come from uh over involvement in our relationships to our parents so the first time i'd ever heard about this concept of enmeshment came from reading Neil Strauss's book. And basically the idea behind it is, is that kids that grow up in, um, in homes where they are enmeshed by their parents, um, they end up sort of, uh, being overly obsessed with freedom and craving freedom and kids that grow up in homes where they're abandoned grow up craving and being obsessed with the opposite with control in a relationship and really wanting to own the other person in relationship. And so those are basically the two types of trauma that parents knowingly or unknowingly inflict on their children. And in my case, um, I think that, you know, I was looking at issues where my parents were a little bit too, uh, involved and too, uh, enmeshing, and, um, which sort of caused me, you know, in college and even after college to really just want to like break free from anything that I took as, uh, something that was encroaching on my freedom An intimate relationship to me meant, um, you know, 
had the flavor of I'm being smothered. And For sure. So that was, you know, the, that was another thing that was linked to the pattern that I described earlier that made me want to get out of relationships was this feeling of like, mm, no, I don't like this. I'm, I feel like I'm being enclosed. And, um, and, you know, after reading this book, I started to dive into this stuff. And basically the, the cure for it is to become, is to sort of resolve that energetic connection that you still have to mom and dad. That's sort of sapping the passion from your current relationship. And the way that me and you talked about it was like, uh, so you sort of have this like passion tank, right? You have like a passion fuel tank. And if you are still in a situation where you're too passionate, your relationship to your mother, or your father is too passionate. You are, uh, whether that's positive or negative, um, you right. don't have, you're not going to have enough left over for your intimate relationships, for your work, for your career. So, yeah, that's an interesting thing to think about. There's this common refrain in psychoanalytic thought, and it's you know, and it's said in multiple ways by different um, psychologists. But you you have to kill your parents. Yeah, right. like psychologically, you have to you have to destroy the dependent childlike relationship that you had to have with them when you were younger. Now that you are an adult, in order to actually be an adult. Yes, that's it. And, and you don't actually have to, uh, you don't have to resolve your, uh, you have to literally murder them. <laughs> you don't have to literally change anything about your physical relationship with your parents in order to improve your psychological well-being. You only have to change your relationship to the parents that live in your mind. Amen. So in my case, without going into too many details, what I had to do was I had to draw boundaries with my mom who was still looking at me and treating me like her child, like a, like her young child, like her son, you know, that was the role that she, uh, had, it had just become ingrained, you know, she was, she was the mother and I was the son. And I think a lot of a lot of these uh, dysfunctional family relationships happen when the parents don't get along, which was the situation in my case. So when you've got uh, one parent that's not having their emotional needs met by their partner, they'll go to their children to have their emotional needs met, which is fucked up. Um, and the kids end up growing up sort of having this like resentment, you know, that, bleeds into their relationships and fucks their relationships up. So in my case, I had to draw boundaries. Be like, mom, look, I love you, you know, but we need to, uh, draw some lines around what works and what doesn't work for me. I'm fucking grown ass man. And with my dad, it was a little bit of the opposite with him. I wanted to sort of reconnect with him and feel closer with him. Mm, Um, Yeah. And, um, I, I wanted him to be not so aloof and I wanted him to be more a part of my life. So there was still, you know, even in that instance, there was like a passion, right? There was still this like energetic tension with me and my father that was different than the tension with me and my mother, but it was still a tension regardless. And once that tension was eased just by opening up and talking to them first journaling for a really fucking long time Mm -hmm. to get my, thanks to you, Eric, honestly, um, and getting my thoughts 
uh, in order and then, you know, having the confrontations, you know, interrupting that dance that had been going on for decades. Um, it's not easy, but it initially created some conflict, but then it resolved. Now our relationships are better than they ever have been. And without making any changes to my, uh, dynamic with, between myself and my wife or even my relationship between me and my coworkers and, and just my work in general just improved on its own because I wasn't expending this mental ram, uh, going back and forth with these, this mom figure in my mind and this dad figure in my mind. It's like something that has been a, great relief to not have to deal with anymore. And, um, I'd really recommend that book for anybody that's interested in this stuff. It's amazing. It's a really fun read and it really got me to start to dive deep into this stuff and it's improved things for me a lot. So I really recommend it. Yeah. So I'm sure that there are plenty of people listening who are like, fuck, I for sure have a unsevered childlike relationship that I still maintain with either this parent or both parents and um, is just like the eating example and like the meditation example. It sounds like what you are saying is these people do not realize how much energy they're leaving on the table, so to speak, that they could be using towards manifesting their dream life by maintaining this childlike connection to one or both parents that in some level on some level need to be severed and or not severed, but it needs to be alchemized and transformed from a relationship that was established when you were five mm -hmm. to a new one that needs to be renegotiated now that you're 28. And that by doing that, you're going to free up a tremendous amount of your psychic energy that you can then put towards crushing it at your work or really bringing to being more present in the relationship that you're in now that you want to be. Or maybe being a father or a mother yourself now and bringing more energy to the relationship with your child. Yes. And you, can, and you kind of touched on it, but what other resources would you recommend to people who are like, fuck, I have that, what do I do? So far, our recommendation is to get the book, um, The Truth. But is there anything else that comes up for you that you could offer these people who would be interested in this? Yeah, and just to add on to what you said, that's exactly right. We have a reserve of energy, of psychic energy that we don't even realize that we have. Like we're, we're more tired than we realize. We're more psychologically exhausted than we realize. And dealing with these things through meditation, clearing the way for, for these things to resolve through meditation. And also diving on the other, on the other hand, diving into this family of origin stuff. It's really remarkable how much more juice you'll feel like you have in your life. Like literally you'll feel like you have more, like, like you need less sleep. Like you, like food tastes better. You've got more energy to go to the gym. You've got You've just got more juice. We're just, it, it comes down to the fact that our energy is dispersed. It's scattered all over the place. So it's like a light bulb, you know, that's shooting light all over the room versus taking that same light and just sort of condensing it down into a flashlight beam that you can direct and, and use. You're going to have more energy in the, in the flashlight beam. I don't know. Maybe that's like a corny analogy, but that's how it feels. Um, 
No, for sure. Um, a fluorescent light will bore the fuck out of you. A laser can fucking set you on fire. Yeah, it can do anything. You know, it can do it can do lots of different things. So, as far as um, as far as other resources, you know, James Hollis is a psychologist that I really admire. He has some really completely recommend. Man, he's got some really great short books. Under Saturn Shadow is a book that was a game changer for me. Um, I think he has another one called like The Middle Passage or something like that. Or He's got like at least six off the top of my head that if you if that is the book that you read at the right time, it'll be the most important book that you ever read. A really popular one that's recommended is um, Through the Dark Woods. Uh, highly recommendo. All of them are good. Yeah. All of them are fire. James Hollis is uh, the true Jungian whisperer. Yes, and very easy to read. He's very... Yeah. Jung is sometimes a little complex for hey, people to read. You're right. No, it's true. He's awesome, but... It's, he's, no, I'm joking. Yeah. You're completely right. Um, it's terrible. Um, you know, I want to just go back to the meditation retreat thing because I really, it's really something that I want to sell and uh, push a lot um, because it has been so tremendously helpful in my life. I was thinking today about, I was talking to a friend who made the comment that, you know, he tried to meditate. He, couldn't do it. You know, I tried and I couldn't do it or like it didn't, it didn't work. And I was thinking about how funny it would be if I took somebody to the gym and I was like, all right, you want to have big muscles and a six pack? I want you to pick up this weight and I want you to lift it and I want you to eat good food and, you know, do that for a while and you'll have big muscles and you'll have a six pack and you'll have like a really lean fit athletic body. This person if they, you know, went and tried this two or three times and looked in the mirror would easily give up and be like, what the fuck is this guy talking about? It's not working. Um, but we live in a society where you can look on a magazine and you can see that there are people with six packs and there are people that look fucking awesome with their shirts off. And so there is a, there is this general, it's easier to believe the process of training in the gym and watching your nutrition resulting in an aesthetic physique. But there's people walking all over this planet right now with aesthetic minds that we can't see. Interesting. Yeah. And they don't make the magazine covers. And a lot of them don't look that great uh, physically aesthetic, right? So um, it's a harder sell but it's the exact same concept. It's just like training in the gym. It's really no different. There's a, there's this faculty of focus that you're able to train. Your concentration improves over time. As your concentration improves, you're able to carry the insights that you get from meditation, from psychoanalysis, from reading books, from taking psychedelics, you're able to take those insights and actually bring them into your life. Because a lot of times if you're just hunting for insights, it's, it's not easy to make them manifest in your life. For me, like I spent a lot of times during my journey, a lot of years figuring things out and intellectualizing and having these insights through the experiences I was having, but then wondering like, why the fuck am I still repeating the same pattern? Even though like I've learned this lesson already, like, what is this? What is this about? And meditation was the missing piece. That was the piece that allowed me to actually take these insights and bring them into my life moment to moment to moment. 
And I think that's really the key to breaking addictions. I think it's the key to resolving a lot of this family stuff that we're talking about. So that two pronged approach, I think is super, super important. So if anybody out there is listening, that is, you know, this is resonating with you, like really just try sitting a retreat at some point. You don't have to sit 10 day Vipassana. You don't have to sit for a week. You can do a three day retreat. You can even do one day. Um, but just give yourself that gift, man. It's been tremendously helpful for me and it doesn't have to be Zen Buddhism. It doesn't, it doesn't fucking matter what tradition it's in. It just, just, just do it. Just do it. And what I would offer there is first, I agree. And just to send it home even further, you're the container through which you are going to experience every moment of your life is going to be your consciousness. It is the medium through which you will experience everything. And meditation is the thing that you can do with your consciousness to improve the quality of your consciousness. And when you think about that, that because your consciousness is the medium through which you will experience every lover, every orgasm, every delicious dinner, every win, every insight, every heartbreak, every sadness, every tragedy, the clarity of all of that will be dictated by the clarity of your consciousness. And meditation is it's, it's the technique that has been passed down from master to master since the beginning of civilization. And it works. And it improves every area of your life. And it makes you better at sex. Okay. <laughs> it's great. It is, it's great. It's like if I had, you know, I've got a lot of shit to do around the house. Like, you know, there's a newborn here. We got to change the baby's diaper. We have to play with them. We have to feed them. We have, you know, there's chores and things to be done. And there's there's a lot of shit to do. And let's say that I take my glasses off, right, to like wipe the lenses on my glasses. My wife could easily look at me and be like, why are you wiping your, why are you wiping your glasses clean? There's all this, there's all this stuff to do. Like, don't waste your time. Like, why are you wasting time when there's all this, all these things that we need to do? And it's like, it's not a waste of time to have clear glasses for me to do all of these things that I need to do with clear sight and like devoting some time to, um, clearing the lenses of your mind, which like you said, is like the medium through which we literally perceive everything I think is a worthwhile investment. And I think that, um, yeah, just wanted to tack that on there at the end. It's pretty much the exact same thing you said with the eyeglass analogy. <laughs> Dude, um, we're going to need to keep doing these, and I hope that next time you come on, you come on as Spider-Man, but we'll make up some other alias. Maybe I'll cut this part out, but I would really like to talk specifically with you about some of your experiences. Yes. And, uh, dude. I love you. I really appreciate you connecting with me after the first go for your win and just seeing what a beautiful relationship this has blossomed into. And you're a fucking dad now, man. Congratulations. Thank you, Eric. I really appreciate you, man. You've been an amazing fucking ally. And I wish I had more friends like you on the physical plane here near me. Um, but I'm glad that we've been able to 
keep our connection after you go for your win. And I think you're fucking awesome, man. You're helping a lot of people out with your work. So I love you too. Thank you, brother. All right, Eric.